listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Oneofus.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber supported. Please consider becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net. Keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well. Welcome, Sir John. Welcome, and thank you for joining me in this week's Digital Noise. Oh, hello, Christopher. It's so good to be here. It is a jolly good time. Indeed. <laughs> is that in your head what Sir John would sound like? No. I don't no. know what he sounds if you like. Were this, br- I'll tell you what he sounds like the past two weeks. He sounds like a hacking cough is what he sounds like. Oh, there's a lot of that going around. Yeah. I feel like I'm safe. I, I don't drink Corona, so mm-hmm. I should be all right. Yeah. yeah. You'll I be know. fine. Everybody's made Unless you get a parasite because oh, <laughs> that's what everybody's talking about I get it uh-huh. i've had a, a sort of amount of fun and disgust following the people who lost their goddamn minds when parasite won all the like right wingers and incels and stuff i was like wow yeah today's been an interesting social media day i don't think i expected uh what what i anticipated was the the uh it's not that good backlash from film geeks uh, like a certain subset to be like, here's why the reasons why it's overrated. Mm-hmm. And uh, instead it was like some bizarre chorus of voices I had never heard in the film sphere before, like Mother Jones saying uh, subtitled movies, dubbed movies. Subtitled movies come from poor countries, and dubbed movies really? are from countries that can afford real actors to dub the material. And Who all this, the like, hell would write bizarre that? Bizarre rhetoric. Uh, uh, revolving around Parasite. Oh my god! So I'm glad that we're not talking about Parasite today. Yeah, yeah. I, I will say, like, I was at an Oscar party I go to every year with a bunch of like old longtime Austinites, and uh, they do a pool. So I always enter the pool, mm-hmm. and it's the one thing where I'm like, I'm always like, this is my Super Bowl, where everyone is there, like checking something. Did you get this one? What happened? I missed one. I was like, uh, and Parasite was my number one film of the year, but it wasn't the film I picked to win. I, yeah. I think very few people picked it to win because you're like, it's definitely going to best get foreign language film. It's unheard of for a foreign language film to also win Best Picture. So that's not going to happen. And when it did, I remember going like, oh, I lost, but I won. <laughs> <laughs> I was very excited. Uh, also groundbreaking because first time a foreign language film has ever won Best Picture. Oh, yeah? Yeah, in history. That's crazy. Pretty cool. A man that shot of Bong Joon Ho is like as as his uh, producing partner is talking to the mic, and he's just sitting there looking at the Oscar, and he like turns up there and looks at the camera, is just smiling like a little kid on Christmas. He's like, I can't believe this shit. I love it. Also, why did Eminem there? No one seems to know. Eminem Eminem played a song from like Eight Mile, and everyone was like. What is happening right now? Why are you here? That's what happens when you don't have a host. Anybody can walk through the door and just get on stage just and start like start rapping. doing a thing. Yeah. yeah, weird. That's what happened. The host is there to tell people to sit down. <laughs> mm-hmm. Stop it! Get back in your seat. Yeah. Shia, just we warned you before. Yeah. <laughs> I almost, I kind of would thought it'd been great if Donald Trump had shown up and j- just with no invite and just like, well, I'm the president. You have to let me in. They're like, no, dude. There's no seats. 
<laughs> Just to watch him think bluster. If, if in my lifetime, if I've ever seen a president attend the Academy Awards, I don't think that that's ever happened. I don't happened think in my it's lifetime. happened either. But it seems like something Trump would show up to do just to put his foot down. Yeah. You know? I don't yeah. know. Hey, but you know, uh, they always say Hollywood is like the liberal elite, mm-hmm. but they also say that the liberal elite loves to give participation trophies. True. And they did not give participation trophies at the Oscars, so yeah. suck on that, uh, right-wingers, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go into the home release titles we have to talk about, and we've got some really interesting titles this week and some really fun stuff. First of all, I'll say, despite having mixed feelings about two of the films, well, very specific film f- series about feelings about two of the films in the set, and mixed feelings about one of them. I was really excited to get the Beverly Hills Cop film series, all three of the movies, on Mm -hmm. Blu-ray. Interestingly enough, first time the second two movies have been on Blu-ray. Did not realize that. Oh, that's interesting. I would have assumed two was out. I would have assumed it as well, but no. Uh, Even though neither one of those two comes with any bonus features of any kind, uh, the first film does come with previously existing bonus features, because that was released on on a not anywhere near as well-mastered version of the film previously on blu-ray this is made from uh struck from a 4k new new 4k negative and it, you can tell it, it looks and sounds much better but um and there are a few bonus features but they're oddly put together it's like here's a bunch of like interview snippets that they've done nothing to remaster they just kind of inserted little clips of them inside of frames animated frames for no good reason at all and they're like why not just play the whole goddamn interviews but it's like here's them answering part of them answering one question yeah you know and and a a few deleted scenes and what have you but let's talk about the films now i'm going to suggest right off the bat that the first beverly hills cop is still all but unrivaled in the action comedy genre i think it set the rules for the action comedy genre uh all films after it were to some degree or another affected by the structure and the way that film was made. Okay. Uh, and I, th- I don't, I don't disagree. I don't know that I've given it that much thought, but I don't disagree. And I think it still holds up. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I rewatched all three of these and it, that was a hard thing to make myself do when we got to the third one. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I don't, it's not as bad as I remember, but we'll get there. Oh man. <laughs> but this was a uh, Martin breast who, despite who really kind of disappeared from the film scene. Um, but he, his other real big not- notable contribution was um, Midnight Run with Robert De Niro, yeah. which is also an absolutely funny uh, classic, but no, not anywhere near as well-remembered uh, mismatched buddy comedy. Um, but Beverly Hills Cop, I think I look at as the high point of overall of Eddie Murphy's film career uh, in terms of his classic comedies. I mean, 48 Hours is probably the better of the two films, but I have rewatched this one many, many more times. Yeah. Uh, it's maybe the only film I can think of that I fondly remember Judge Reinhold from. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think he was in Ruth- Ruthless People. I can't remember. It's been too long. But what do you think of this movie? Uh, I think the first one has got a real effortless charm to it. Um Axel Foley is uh, if you if you haven't seen the Beverly Hills Cop movies, you might be surprised to learn he's not a Beverly Hills Cop. He is a Detroit Cop, yeah. Who uh, for various reasons finds himself in Beverly Hills. Um, the film doesn't play hard on like fish out of water tropes as far as him being on the West Coast. It does a little bit, but it's not. It doesn't lean into that. And you kind of think it would based on the title and the time period. Like, oh, he's from the mean streets of Detroit. Now he's trying to navigate L.A. And it's like it's not really what it's about. Um, 
but he has an effortless charm. The movie has an effortless charm because of him. Um, he's also kind of a, uh, almost like a, he's a little bit of a Bugs Bunny type, mm-hmm. like kind of sly and always has like uh, a little, a little jab, a little witty thing to say to anybody that he's having a conversation with. Um, first one's first one's quite good, and then I think everything. I think. I mean, we can roll right into the second and the third one. Sure. I don't know if you have any other thoughts about the first no, one. Other than to add, it's in- interesting that it's a fish out of water where usually those stories are one where it's funny that they don't understand what's going on. Yeah. And in this one, it's him taking advantage of the people who in Beverly Hills who are the ones that are kind of clueless to how the real world works because they're stuck in their weird little bubble. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so he actually, like you said, he's a Bugs Bunny type. He comes in and manipulates the situation because he's the smartest guy in the bunch. And in the second one, the problem with that is that he's no longer an underdog. So yeah. in the first one, he's an underdog who happens to be the smartest guy in the room. In the second one, he's just flatly the smartest guy in the room at any given time. And it changes the dynamic of the film and it changes the chemistry of the film's um, I think the second one is passable, but it does not have the it does not have the kind of carefree, like relaxed feeling of the first one. It has much more focused Hollywood product feeling mm-hmm. where they're trying to distill the things that they thought worked really well in the first one and then deliver that to you again in bigger and better ways. Um, and I don't think it's I because of that I don't think it's necessarily as successful. It's very much a sequel as I make bunny ears with mm-hmm. my fingers. It's very much a sequel uh, and suffers from those things that sequels try to do when they try to capture lightning in a bottle a second time. And I think uh, this one was taken over by Tony Scott. And if you've ever seen a Tony Scott film, you have some idea of every Tony Scott film. They all have a certain feel to them. Yeah. And that's not a criticism per se. He just definitely has that. I mean, he is so representative of a period in Hollywood action thrillers. Mm-hmm. But comedy was never really his forte. No. And it shows here where (coughs) there's nowhere near as much comedy in this as there is in the first one. Um, The first one rolls definitely harder on the comedy side than it does on the action side. This one is exactly the opposite. It wants to be just straight up a Tony Scott film. And he almost seems a little annoyed at having to throw in comedy sequences into it. Uh, And almost all of them are just as you said, sort of like slightly bigger versions of jokes we heard already in the first film. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I would say that I, I, that makes the dy- shakes up the dynamic a little bit interestingly is, you know, in the first one, Axel Foley and the two other local Beverly Hills cop cops are, you know, not friends. They're right. reluctantly coming to kind of like each other with size. Here, they are actually friends. Like they're like, oh, these dudes hang out all the time between the last movie, and they've yeah. stayed buddies. And their dynamic is different, and it's kind of fun to watch that different dynamic. I th- yeah, I think the I think the one time the film feels like the first one is the scene where they go to Judge Reinhold's apartment in the second one, mm-hmm. and the movie kind of relaxes for a second, and then they just kind of riff on the furnishing and his pets and things like that. And that's like the only time in the second one that really feels straight lifted from the first one, whereas everything else has, yeah, that Tony Scott flavor. And it's got the double one-two punch of like two actors who almost never play anything but bad guys, Bridget Nielsen and Jürgen Prochnow. Yeah. I don't think Jürgen, wait, Jürgen Prochnow was the good guy in Das Boot, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I think that's it though. (laughs) If your name is Jürgen, you're pretty much set. Uh, and, oh, um, this got nominated for an Oscar for Best Song. Original song was Shake Down, 
breakdown. Oh, Come on, wow. you know what I'm talking about? Wow, a song that's not good, but goddamn, will it get stuck in your head and not leave? <laughs> wow, <laughs> no, I didn't realize that. Uh, yeah, the first one has such a good soundtrack. It has all those uh, the Pointer Sister songs, uh-huh. and and it has Axel F. And yeah, yeah, this, and then the yeah. second one we noticed. We noticed significantly that the soundtrack was like they were all, they were going for they it was it was like they wanted to have another hit soundtrack mm-hmm. but it was like the hits weren't as good as the one in the the ones in the first one. That's um, true. That Pointer Sister song was great. It's always interesting when you see an '80s movie where the hits were from the movie, like the hits were hits because of the movie. Yeah. So you hear Neutron Dance, and it's like no Neutron Dance was a hit because. It was in the movie, right? Like it wasn't like oh, it was already a hit, and then they put it in the movie. Or the power of love, yeah, but, yeah exactly. You know, something like that. You're yeah. Like, oh yeah, that was or uh, more on the nose. Ghostbusters, yeah, <laughs> which unbelievably was a huge radio hit. <laughs> what do you think about part three? Uh, I think that I remember. It took me a long time to see this. I did not see this when it came out in the That's theater. The first one I saw. God damn! I'm surprised you ever went back and watched the others. <laughs> I had heard right off the bat, I think everyone did, that, oh, my God, this thing is a miserable piece of shit. And I was like, I don't, I, I like the first two. I don't even want to ruin it with that. And I, I, the few people I talked to to went to see it were like, yeah, just don't. Just don't see it. And it's weird because it's directed by John Landis, so, who certainly has made some really great films before this. Yeah, there was apparently behind the scenes a confluence of events that were going on. One was Eddie Murphy had just come off a string of bombs mm-hmm. and was, for the first time in his career, really soul-searching and going, who am I? What's my future? Am I destined to bomb every time? What's happening to me? And a weak script that Landis said, Eddie will make it funny. Right. And when they got on set, Eddie had no desire to make it funny because he was in his head. And he actually had other thoughts about how to play Axel, where he's like, well, Axel's older now like I am, so he wouldn't always be a smartass. He wouldn't always be. (coughs) And so what Landis had expected to do, which was milk more comedy in the moments, just that never came because, you know, that was not what Eddie Murphy's intent was. Um, But even beyond that, I think that the movie is just flatly lame. Yeah. And there's, like... Uh, it's it's not funny, and the action is pretty piss poor. Yeah, um, it it does not look or feel as cinematic as the first two. Um, it feels very bargain basement. Uh, it, it's a weird plot about counterfeiting that leads back to a. Uh, it's literally the place where they shot Wally World in mm-hmm. National Lampoon's Vacation, but it's like a counterfeiting ring that leads back to like this amusement park. Yeah. And Eddie Murphy keeps going back to the amusement park to like uncover this counterfeit. It's supposed counterfeit. to be a Disney World analog, even to yeah. the point of having a Walt Disney esque character who mm-hmm. is who is introduced. Uh, and this was pitched as Die Hard at Disneyland. You know, at this point, everybody wanted everything to be Die Hard on a yeah. And this was suffered from that as well. It also suffered from the fact the original plan was for this to be, I think, r- around seventy or eighty million, and was written that way. Mm-hmm. And then they uh, cut the budget to around fifty. Yeah. Which means they had to cut out several huge sequences out of it. I think the only really surviving big sequence is so out of nowhere, pointless, where he's on a, a Ferris wheel. Oh, that sequence! If you if you're listening to this and you <coughs> you, you want to see how to destroy an action sequence. Mm-hmm. You can see that whole scene on YouTube in its entirety. You have essentially a stuntman that's jumping from gondola to gondola on this ride. And then you have it cut to Eddie Murphy standing on top of a gondola in front of like a green screen or blue screen. And it keeps cutting. And then you cut to the crowd. And the crowd shots, 
I can't fathom why the crowd shots have no reaction noise. Everyone is just standing there. Right. And I'm like, I wanted to scream at Landis and was like, why aren't the crowds making sound? I couldn't comprehend why the crowds, one, why the crowds weren't making sound. Two, I couldn't comprehend why they didn't shoot Murphy on top of an actual gondola and edit it in. Mm -hmm. Set the gondola on the ground, have him stand on top of it, shoot him on top of it, and then cut it in so it looks like he's standing on top of the real thing instead of it being... We're cutting to the green screen of him. We're cutting to the stunt man. We're cutting to the crowd that has no reaction. Right. And then they take those that three shot, like the three cuts, and then they loop those three cuts over and over and over to build the sequence. Mm-hmm. It's awful. And if I were the stunt man that was actually risking my life jumping from gondola to gondola, I would have been so pissed off when I saw that play out in a theater and how bad it made me look as a stunt man. Yeah. It's so shit. It's one of the worst shot action sequences in a Hollywood level production, maybe ever shot. So so bad. Um, and it's also egregious in that what is it doing in a Beverly Hills Cop movie? <laughs> like, did you guys even see the previous two films? This is there just was, not a Beverly Hills Cop movie so, thing to happen. So the other fun fact about three is that it was a there was a script. What they liked was. They had this idea of doing a script where there was a police convention in Scotland or somewhere in the UK, basically, and they were going to take the characters, the Judge Reinhold and his partner character, and Ronnie Cox, everybody, or Ronnie Cox dies in the second one, is that right? Uh, no, is he no, still alive? He, no, I think he lives at the end. They were going to yeah. take the core characters and bring them over to England, and it was going to be a story about him attending a police convention over there, and then some something goes wrong at the police convention, and they were talking about bringing in Sean Connery or like John Cleese, they had all these names they were going to bring in, and it was all going to take place overseas, and they kept reworking that script and reworking that script and reworking that script. And then they had this other script that was not a Beverly Hills Cop script, which was probably, again, a script that was pitched as a diehard in an amusement park. Sure. And they went, well, let's make that. And that's what they ended up making instead of, of the England movie. Well, this thing is, it's, it feels like the pilot for a TV show that would have come out around this time of Beverly Hills Cop. Let's say Murphy's career had totally died and he said yes to like an ABC Network Beverly Hills Cop show that came out in the 90s. Yeah. It wouldn't have looked any different than this. Like, it looks like bad early 90s television quality garbage. Um, it just looks bad through the whole thing. It's so cheaply made. Landis, I mean, certainly has had a mixed career, but we know he knows how to make a film look better than this. Uh, I, I, There are obviously a lot of factors that came together to make this the failure that it is. But anytime I still meet people who are like, oh, I kind of like Beverly Hills Cop 3, I was like, have you seen it since you were 10? <laughs> watching it, so watching it first, it was just like having no context of the first two. Watching the third one first I, I, and seeing it in the theater back in the day, I was like, this is okay. And then you watch, if you're, if you're sitting down and watch the trilogy and you go one to two to three, the, just the market quality difference that just drops the second you hit three. Oh, yeah. I mean, nobody gives a shit in that movie. I mean, say what you will about two. It is polished to a fault. Yeah. I mean, it is a very slick looking professional Hollywood film. Mm -hmm. And this almost feels like an independent made feature. (laughs) It's rough. It's very rough. And also why are there cameos by such famous people on it? Like George Lucas is in it at one point. You're like, why are you here? This is cameo. Why you even posted it. I I rewound it because I went, wait, is that George? I didn't remember that. I didn't remember it at all. Sing it. I didn't remember that part from the theater. I got to that part in the movie and I was like, what? 
was that George Lucas? And I rewound it, and I was like, yeah, that's... It's George Lucas yeah. for no reason. He's for waiting no to reason. he's waiting to get on the gondola ride when that action sequence starts and he's turned away. Yeah, somebody. I mean, I guess because their buddies with Landis. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's weird though. The movie you're like, huh? <laughs> okay. I mean, Lucas is not exactly known for making cameos in films either. So I was like, that's doubly weird. Uh, one last thing though, I got to say. So, like, you know what character we never brought back from the first one? <laughs> Bronson Pinchot's character. Mm-hmm. And you, like, imagine that room meeting where they're like, yeah, because where, the, why would he be there? It's, he was like a, a, a weird little gay guy who worked at an art gallery. Is that, like, two small moments that are cute in the first film? Why would he be back? And, like, what if he quit the art world and became a high level gun de- dealer? Yeah. And you're like, what? <laughs> I I blame Lethal Weapon because I remember the ad campaigns played up his return, uh-huh. and I blame Joe Pesci in the Lethal Weapon series. I think that it was a little bit of them going, yeah, we had a guy like that. We had a wacky, colorful character that bounced off of our lead. Well, let's bring him back for this new sequel. Just baffling, man. Yeah. And that whole is just an excuse to get this weird stunt gun into here, which is... I, I who sat there and went, oh, this is gonna go over like gangbusters. This mm-hmm. is gonna be such a funny joke. <laughs> oh well, we, we talked the most about the worst. One. I know. Well, it is true. It's easier to talk smack than it is to, to give praise. Uh, next up, we have Chained for Life, a film I I had remember when it came out, going, well, that looks unusual, but was really shocked to see recently when I was looking at Rotten Tomatoes highest ranked movies of the decade and this ranked at a, a, a cool 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. I was mm. like, man, I don't remember it screening here. I don't remember. I don't know anyone who's seen it. So when they when Kino decided to put it out, I was like, oh, okay. I'm kind of excited to see this now. Um, I can report that I can see why it was across the board thumbs up, but I think that you it's important to remember that like that is an analog system. <laughs> you know, people always people it's always a one think or it's zero. How what's the quantity of quality inside? Yeah. Not would you cuz the reality is the 100% means if you asked 10 critics in a room, would you say see it or don't see it? And 10 went, "Eh, see it." Yeah. And that means okay, it's 100%. It doesn't mean a lot of people think that the percentage relates to how good it is. Yeah. Oh, it's 80% good. And it's like, no, it means eight out of 10 dentists recommend it. Like, yeah. It literally does. Yeah. And that can go the other way too. Like I see films that people are like, Oh, it's only 50% around tomatoes, but it's like that five out of 10 people who said, see it. We're like, that movie's a 10 out of 10 and I fucking love it. Yeah. You know, sometimes yeah. just saying it can play that way too. So if Rotten Tomatoes is such a terrible metric anyway, and also just flat out, I don't know who decides what is a thumbs up or a thumbs down on it from rotten or fresh. But sometimes you read the review, you're like, "What? Why would you call this a rotten or fresh?" You're like sometimes who does they this? apply it depending on having having been a Rotten Tomatoes accredited film critic <laughs> due to the outlets that I wrote for. Uh-huh. If you're if you're esteemed enough and your outlet is big enough, they assign it for you because they want your name on there. So mm-hmm. they take like an Owen Gleiberman or whoever is writing for like an Entertainment Weekly or something like that. The minute your review goes live, they're going to post it and they're going to determine for themselves. Or look at your score and go, that's a fresh or rotten. Okay. Anybody else, you have actually a tool. This is behind the scenes of Rotten Tomatoes. You have a tool where you upload the link to your review. It goes up and you have a drop down that you choose. And the drop down is you choose yes or no. You mm. choose fresh or rotten. Well, I have- and, and so 
there's a lot of movies that like I'm one of the I brought this up before I'm one of the few critics that you can find a fresh for the uh, Trask version of Fantastic Four on oh boy but it's because I was faced with see it or don't and I was like I think you should see it and marked it as as fresh um, so you know I, I always look at it as if you give it a five or below it's a it's a rotten yeah in my head if I was doing it which I'm not it's probably right but, but see I didn't give I didn't give Fant- I wouldn't have given Fantastic Four less than a five. Oh, I think I gave it like so, a two not that we're talking about Fantastic Four yeah, but I, I find the first hour of it perfectly adequate capable superhero filmmaking okay. it's that title card where it says one year later when it all goes when it all me. comes in. well that's certainly when it gets much worse for me yeah. um, but uh, I will say that even people I know who do it have had occasions where they're like we didn't even review that film and there's a review linked wow. <laughs> with like a quote they're like that's not us but they have it as if it was I was like what does that mean so something is is just broken in that algor- algorithm with those guys uh, but that being said, that being said, Chain for Life, which is the story of Jess Wexler, who is an actress on the set of a film that's in the process of being made. That's sort of a mad scientist uh, at, who works at a um, institute for basically people who would qualify as carnival freak show, sideshow yeah. people. But uh, she is this blind woman who uh, starts to have a friendship with one of the monstrous people who's played by a real-life disfigured actor, Adam Pearson, who, if you saw... Oh, God. What was Under the Skin. Under the Skin with Scarlett Johansson. That's a very memorable scene in Under the Skin. Yeah, he has a significant role in there. Here, I mean, the, and here it's a leading role, and the, the idea is, you know, it's very... She's blind. She's like, no, it doesn't matter what you look like. I, I love your spirit. And then when, of course, her eyesight comes back, she's like, ah, monster. I mean, it's obviously kind of a corny movie. It's It was... The acting is very... St- so my expectations based on some of the things that I'd read, I really wanted to see this and had really anticipated something that was um, a more emotionally resonating film than I found it. It wears its message on its sleeve very from much. go in a very simplistic, uh, not very deep or thoughtful way. It's it's, And that's fine. It's just very, very obvious about it and not very skilled at handling any of its themes. And I also found the acting kind of across the board. The thing with like a meta movie where you're making a movie about making a movie is if your actors aren't 100% natural, the artifice of you doing a movie about a movie is somehow amplified and made worse by the fact that everyone is coming across really actorly. Mm -hmm. And the only person who I thought acquitted themselves as far as playing 100% natural was our lead. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was his name again? Oh, um, Adam Adam uh, Pearson. Adam Pearson was the was the sole actor that I was like, I believe this person. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is like phony baloney, like like community college levels of acting. I did not. It's a, this movie is a real mixed bag. Yeah. And uh, as much as I anticipated something that would be really thoughtful and make me think deeply about how we consider monsters or on or even the way that we uh, frame people that are freaks as monsters within films, I thought it was going to be something that cast it in a new light, showed me something new that I'd never thought about before. And it was just a very much like a very... Surface level. Surface level movie with uh, with, you know... Kind of, I, it's interesting that they cast someone who actually, you know, has to deal with that as part of their real life. Mm-hmm. 
and they and and again a great performance from him. Yeah, completely. It's not even a matter of being believable in the sense that I believe he's the character that he's playing because he's done it before, but also just from a line delivery standpoint, feeling like he's just chilling out between takes, which yeah. is what everybody's supposed to be doing in this movie, and everybody else comes across so damn actorly, mm-hmm. including a uh, uh, Wexler who our, I think is always a bit suffered in her career. Our freaking Charlie Corsmo is the director who, for some reason, adopts like a half-assed, uh, like, Werner Herzog accent for some reason. Yeah, that was a weird choice. Just lots of odd. There's lots of weird choices, choices that, some, that come across as feeling like, oh, this is going to be funny. Mm-hmm. It's going to add the the absurd surreality. But it never comes across as all that surreal. It just comes across as kind of like an amateurish little movie. Yeah. And there are things I really like about this, watching it. I mean, like I said, Pearson is great. There's some great, there's some great ideas that never really completely play out. You know, it's like a lot of half-baked uh, ideas that don't feel like they ever come to any sort of real fruition. And this is this is a movie that, talking about Rotten Tomatoes, it, it was disappointing. But if I had, again, if I was faced with the binary of fresh or rotten, I would probably go fresh. But it, it pretty much disappointed me at every turn. Yeah. Uh, there is an audio commentary with the director, uh, one deleted scene, an interview with Adam Pearson, which is definitely the one thing you should watch on here. It's a really interesting conversation with him. Uh, interview with the actress Jess Wexler, interview with actress Sari Lennick, and the trailers. I would also recommend people looking up Adam Pearson on YouTube. There's a great short documentary that's about 15 minutes long. He was born a twin, an identical twin, and his brother is quote-unquote normal looking. Yeah. Uh, and the documentary about the two of them talking about their life together and their upbringing and, and the changes that started to happen to him, uh, it really brings uh, humanity into focus that this movie doesn't. Interesting. I will check that out. I saw when I was doing re- researching about it that that was the case and saw pictures of them together. Yeah. That's got to be a weird relationship. You know, just mixed feelings, especially for the other brother who's like, a, like there's got to be some sense of weird, like, you know, it's obviously not his fault on any level, but guilt nonetheless. You know, I'm the, I'm the version of him that didn't, that gets to live the normal life. And why is that fair? Well, I think his brother has, oh, gosh. I would have to look this up again, but I think his brother has uh, has memory issues. Oh, like, really? Yeah. Um, so like, he got something, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so our next film is a little indie Japanese film by a first-time director that, I'll tell you, certainly doesn't feel like a first-time director film for me for an indie film uh, called C- uh, Complicity. The story takes place in Japan, but our primary character is a Chinese guy, Chen, who... Uh, his mom is sick, and he's kind of lying to his mother about his job prospects. But he's going to Japan because I guess there's more opportunities to make money, but he's doing it as an illegal immigrant. So he, through the criminal underworld, he gets a fake identity, um, almost gets busted, but gets a job working at a soba shop, which is a kind of noodle house, uh, kind of in the country part of town. And he slowly starts learning it, and he forms, forms a relationship with a sort of all-business chef, boss older boss and then his daughter who's very nice and he starts actually becoming pretty good at it good enough to the point where the chef is like kind of thinking of him as a almost uh, in a a paternal sort of way and i really liked the humanity of this film as it played out it's very quiet not a lot actually happens but these characters are all really interestingly drawn and their relationships with each other are interestingly drawn 
And I found myself, despite the fact this is not normally the kind of movie I really get sucked into, this is one where I was like, yeah, I was, I was, I was well into it the entire time. Uh, you might have liked it a little more than me, but I don't. Uh, m- but my thoughts are pretty much right there with you. It's very small scale. It's very low key. It's very much just about these people sort of like bonding together on the job. Um, and I, there's not really anything that I didn't like about it. I just think it's a matter of how deep, how deep where it's hooks in me versus how deep where it's hooks in you. Um, because I don't think that anything, I can't, I can't think of any, like on the same level, I can't think of anything that I can like highly praise in it. Mm -hmm. I also can't like really fault it for anything. Right. And so, um, you know, uh, yeah. yeah. So it's like, it's okay. Uh, but, but me thinking it's just okay. I think you, it sounds like you thought it was like a little better than just okay. Yeah. I think this, like I said, amazed. This is the first time director. And I think this definitely bodes very well for whatever the, this guy does next. It's certainly assured. It's very assured. And you know, we talked, we talked a minute ago about realistic performances and mm-hmm. I think everybody feels, you know, it's, I wouldn't say it's documentary style, mm-hmm. but everybody feels a hundred percent real, a hundred percent authentic. All the situations feel completely lived in and real. Uh, and, and sometimes that's, those are the things that first time directors struggle with the hardest is just a feeling of authenticity. Uh, I like that, that there is that and that there's constantly a feeling of dread hanging over it because although it becomes very, well, this is just normal life. There's always that knowledge oh, yeah, that the setup, yeah. at some point, there, they might find him. That's true, and and send him back to China. So his uh, mom will find out he's been lying. Uh, and but more importantly, that he starts to become genuinely concerned for his relationship with this old man, as well as his sort of burgeoning relationship with a with a uh, a customer. He starts to form a more romantic attachment to. I, and I found found that was interesting. The way it was originally just about I don't want to get deported back to China. To more like afraid what they'd think of him. If they knew that he was an illegal immigrant, every time I th- try to think of this movie's title, I think of Compliance, the movie about the chicken place where they make them take their clothes off. Uh huh. Can you repeat the name of this movie one more Complicity. time? Complicity. Complicity. Thank you. Uh, our next movie is Gregory's Girl. Now, this is one of those movies. Every time I ever see a list of like the most beloved British films ever made, this yes. is always on it. And this is the first time an American has ever seen this movie. Never. We're the first ones. Yes. Right? Uh, I don't know if you... This is a fun fact about the movie. Um, it's it's in, it's Scottish. Uh-huh. Scottish language, yeah. which is English. Yeah. It's very Scottish. Yeah. It has an alternate Scottish track, which is not quite as Scottish. It's a uh, little... It's brogue light. It's, it's anglicized Scottish, so oh. that American ears can understand what they're saying a little bit easier. <laughs> so you get it in two two flavors <coughs> two flavors of Scottish on the audio track of the of the Blu-ray. I mean, it's every time I see a film that's like on the most beloved of all time, like British films or by British people, they're always a disappointment by to American standards. I'm always like, this is the film you guys like hitched on to. And Gregory's goes a little better than a lot of the others I've seen that they're for some reason have loved for decades and hold as national treasures, but it's still by the numbers kind of run of the mill. I mean, the one way I connected with it was that I could identify a little bit because it's a high school story. This guy, a uh, Gregory is a, a teenager. He's kind of, you know, he's awkward. 
Yeah. You know, he's not a nerd. He's not a jock. He's just figuring out who he is. Uh, but, you know, he plays on the football team, but they suck. Uh, and she's trying to find, he's trying to find new players and a girl shows up and is, um, and the coach is like, uh, yeah, you can't. And then she's amazing. And I say football, it's soccer. Um, sorry. Footy. Yeah, footy. <laughs> and the dude immediately is like, wow, that girl who's so much better at me th- than this, that is hot. And I was the same way. I fell in love with this girl. Like I was really great at track and field and the girl, the only girl who could beat me in the hundred yard dash, I was like. I must have her. <laughs> <laughs> but I will never catch her. <laughs> exactly. Um, so he's he's very into her, and it's an odd film in that it's romantic and that he wants to be with her, but this movie is not about him getting her. Yeah. You know, and it's not, it never even goes really toxic. And I thought it was going to be, oh boy, this is going to be one of those movies that's super uncomfortable and hasn't aged well at all. It's just all. kind of a hangout movie, right? Yeah. Like, it's just kind of like you meet all these teens and none of them fit easily into any particular category or stereotype. Um, and then you just kind of hang out with them for a little while and you see like the twists and turns of like early dating and playing soccer and school fundraisers and everybody's kind of likable. Yeah. Um, but it's just sort of, it's just sort of like a, a quaint sort of hangout with these, with these characters. There's not any really like an emotional kick in the pants. It's never really laugh out loud funny. No. It's just sort of, uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a pleasant enough way to spend an hour and a half or yeah. however long it is. I have no idea why people consider this as memorable as it is. It feels like it's like, like the DNA, the proto, the first aggregate of cells that eventually would form into a John uh, uh, Hughes film. But I think you know? representation matters. I think for the Scottish kids, they're like, I'm finally seeing myself on screen. Uh-huh. So, you know, I think that has a lot to do with it, maybe. Interest- but- interestingly, though, one of one, there's multiple sort of kind of, will they be, be the love interest in the film? Because part of the thing is, who is this guy? Who is the love interest? It's unclear. One of them is played by Claire Grogan, who is... Uh, Definitely the person you look at is like, wow, she's the one with all the like charisma here. Why isn't she right from the beginning one of the main stars of this mm-hmm. film? And she did go on to do a lot of other roles, but was also better known as a, as a singer in the 80s with a band called Altered Images. And she had a solo career and went on and did a bunch of other stuff. But uh, she's actually kind of memorable and great. And she's the one character in this. You're like, you easily could have been taken right out of a John Hughes film. I yeah. Mean, she, except she would have been the movie would have been all about her. They apparently made a sequel to this. Yes, uh, they did a few years ago, where he's a teacher still lusting after high school girls, which yeah. sounds like a terrible idea for a sequel. Yeah, it's Gregory's two girls, yeah. and uh, yeah, apparently it's awful. <laughs> I mean, they apparently found the, the the main the lead actor, and we're like, "What what are you doing, man?" No, I don't know. I'm like teaching and shit. It's like, want to be in a movie like sequel to Gregory's Girl? How much? <laughs> and that's about it. That's about, about as much planning as went into that. But yeah, like I said, British people. Apparently, according to the internet, like this movie a lot. I can't speak for all my British friends, but I know that, like, traditionally, it is a movie that they go back to and go, oh, Gregory's Girl, that's a classic. It's not. Not by our standards, I don't think. Um, It's also not really upgraded very well. It just looks about, like, DVD quality. It doesn't look like they put a lot of work uh, into it. Excuse me, I don't think you heard. There are two audio tracks. <laughs> There's Scottish and Scottish. Mm, okay. And this is the first time this has ever been on uh, a Region A uh, video. Mm-hmm. This was uh, Region B before on Blu-ray and uh, was not available here unless you had an all-region player. 
There's a new essay by film scholar Jonathan Murray in an included booklet. Uh, uh, there's a uh, audio commentary with the director and film critic. Uh, there's Bill Forsyth uh, doing an interview about the movie for 20 minutes. There's a, a feature called Bill Forsyth, The Early Years, which is uh, him talking about like he wasn't even interested in filmmaking growing up and then just kind of fell backwards into it, which is interesting. And there's Gregory Girl Memories with Claire Grogan, who's uh, uh, 11 minutes of her talking about remembering working on this thing and and various humorous issues they had on the set. Like I said, just okay. Don't see what all the fuss is about. I didn't dislike it. I'm certainly never going to seek it out again. <laughs> I'm not going to roll it out every like February. Go, ah, it's the anniversary of the first time I saw Gregory's girl. Every year we watch Gregory's girl. Just you wait. It's going to be a year and a half, two years from now. You're going to be like, oh, it's the movie Gregory's girl. Did I like that? I can't remember. Don't even know. Uh, Mill Creek has put together, I thought quite conveniently, uh, two of the Terry Pratchett miniseries adaptations that came that that uh, came out on the BBC. The Color of Magic uh, being the uh, the second one that was produced, but is based on the first book in the whole series. It's actually technically based on the first two books, that and The Light Fantastic by Terry Pratchett, and then Hogfather, which was the first of the films to the miniseries to be produced. But I think it's like the seventh or eighth book, something like that in the series. They I'm tend a, I'm a to Pratchett be. Guy. They tend to be very like standalone books. Well, they'll come back and go. Oh, now here's a brand new story with this character that previously appeared in another book, but they're not really one long continuing story. Just coincidentally, I saw a meme immediately after you gave me this, like the day of or the day after. That was a Terry Pratchett meme. That was a guide to Discworld, but it was like a guided version of how to read the Discworld novels. And it was like, do you like connected novels? And it brought you down this path. And it was like, do you like wizards? And then it was like, do you like funny wizards or serious wizards? And it would like <laughs> branch off through all these books. That's funny. Yeah. And it was it was the weird synchronicity of like, it, you had just handed this off to me when I saw that. I've never read a Discworld. The only experience I've had is I played Discworld on Sega CD oh, wow. back in the early 90s. But that's yeah, that's been it. I know I played... I, I don't think it was Sega CD, but I did play a Discworld game at one point. I yeah. think there have been multiple different ones for different systems. I'm sure. But, I mean, Pratchett wrote these books forever. There's a shit ton of them out there, and it, it has he has an awful lot of fans. I've read four of them, I think. They're all very short. And I think I came to the conclusion, I like these. I don't like them enough to obsessively read all of them. Yeah. I mean, to me, his best thing was still good omens that he did with Neil Gaiman, which I, Terry Pratchett fans on the other hand are like, what are you kidding me? That's the worst thing he ever did. And you're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the color of magic, I will say, I think is, although definitely suffers from that sort of BBC low budget adaptation ish look to it is still kind of fun. I, I think it gets the magic of, of what, sells with Pratchett's style of humor, which is always faintly reminiscent of Douglas Adams anyway. Um, and it's got, you know, I mean, at this time, at the time, uh, as, well, still, I guess, Sean Astin, who's, I think, at that point already was in Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm, he was. Uh, um, and then Tim Curry playing the, 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 the villainous wizard who's basically just kind of like a, I'll rise to the top by stabbing anybody in the back I need to within the Council of Wizards that's treated like a funny joke. Yeah. <laughs> You'll see a lot of familiar faces and a lot of strange cameos like Jeremy Irons popping up. Was yeah. The one that was like, whoa. Christopher Lee is the voice of, yeah. of Death, uh, who is 
not just a recurring character through all the books, but eventually becomes possibly the most beloved character in all of Terry Pratchett's books. There's quite a few of his his novels, more popular novels, are all about him, inclu- including the second set in this, which is Hogfather, which is sort of his Christmas tale, but that's all with death as arguably the primary character. Yeah, Color of Magic is sort of about a bad wizard who goes to wizarding school forever and ever and ever and ever and never succeeds, and they kick him out of wizarding school, and then he kind of is out in the real world and he meets a, an American tourist yeah. who's visiting this magical disc world and they kind of hook up and the wizard sort of, sort of proves himself through a series of episodic events. Hogfather is specifically like an alternate universe Christmas where instead of Santa Claus, there's the Hogfather who delivers gifts and death has the, like death as in the Grim Reaper has to replace Hogfather uh, for that particular season. Um, I thought Hogfather was the better of the two. Uh, I think Color Magic is... Uh, movies have to have ups and downs, and you can't play the same note continually for... And the, and, <coughs> and these things are like... They're miniseries. These things run at right over three hours long. Right. And Color Magic plays one note for a long ass time. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's, it's got stuff in it. That's good. I feel like if you cut that down to like an hour and a half, you'd have a pretty kick-ass, like uh kind of a cult comedy, yeah. a magical fantasy. I, I as, think, it, as it stands, whew, I think it's tough. To I think get both of these would be considerably better at an hour and a half. That yeah. There's really no need to tell the, this is literally everything that happened in the books version mm. of it. You're like, yeah, there's, I mean, and it doesn't look like it would have been that hard to do yeah. either. Just make movies out of them and they would have been pretty tight. Yeah. And on the whole, I genuinely enjoy both of these myself. I actually prefer the color of magic. Oh yeah. I, there's just got a lighter tone to it. Um, I love the running joke with the, a totally like naive, but, unstoppable American tourist guy. You know? I liked the ups and downs of Hogfather more. I felt like I was seeing more tonal shifts. And so I felt like I would get something like a scene that would be a little more serious or then a little more funny or something a little more actiony or, and, and it kind of like, I think that alternating tone made it an easier watch for me than the more uh, kind of sameness of Color of Magic. Okay. Um, but they're both interesting, and I also am surprised. I think I was surprised by the production values in both of them, having never heard of either one of them before, actually, this most recent Christmas. Mm-hmm. It was the first time I'd heard of Hogfather. I had a friend that, that watched it for free online and recommended it to me. And, uh, and I don't know what I expected. I think for something I'd never heard of before that had such bad key art on the on Tubi or wherever I watched it. Like, the key art was like, oh, that looks rough. And I started it, and I was like, oh, no, this... Like, someone spent money on this. Mm-hmm. And it's not that it looks like a feature film, but it looks sort of like, if you could imagine... If somebody was throwing money to make, like, a Harry Potter TV miniseries instead of a Harry Potter movie, it's sort of that level of production design. Hmm. The effects are adequate. The sets and the cinematography and everything for both Hogfather and Color of Magic are all... Like very sound and fundamentally, like it, it didn't look as cheap as I expected based on the key art. Right. I mean, it's still cheap by any it's modern cheap. standards yeah, yeah, yeah. at all. But it, it's it's not like they were like you know whatever, man, just shit it out. It, obviously, some it people- doesn't look as bad as say like 
the fourth DTV Dragonheart sequel. Oh god, uh, yeah. like that. That's what I think of when I think of like cheap fantasy is like the stuff that it's just like, ugh. Like, I mean, I think there was definitely love involved in yeah. putting these together. It was clearly assembled by people who genuinely love Pratchett, and the the British definitely hold him in very high regard. Uh, and these both performed very well over there, and of course to a lesser extent here because Pratchett's just not as well known or loved in America as he is in Britain. But I think if you are a Pratchett fan, you're not going to be disappointed with these. I think if you've never really gotten a taste for Pratchett and tried, I don't think this is going to change your mind. Uh, but I'll tell you, at Mill Creek, putting this out for super cheap with both of them uh, in one set, one Blu-ray, you're like, yeah. I mean, it's definitely, for your money, this is a good deal. It's a great value. It really is a great value. And and who knows, maybe Hogfather will be end up on your, like yearly Christmas rotation. <laughs> yeah, assuming that that's all you have time to watch is the one thing. So it's very long. Uh, so we'll move on to another two-movie set, which is Mommy and Mommy's Day, which is also known as Mommy 2. Now, I have never, I had never heard of this. I was like, what? I didn't ask for this. They just kind of sent it along. <laughs> like, 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 I didn't ask for this. No, no. I mean, I wasn't even supposed to be here today, yeah. man. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, sometimes... Why me when you get your mail? <laughs> sometimes you'll be like, you'll ask for something, and the company will be like, well, as long as you're watching that, maybe you'll mm-hmm. watch these too, and we'll throw in this other thing because nobody was asking for copies of it. Oh, man. And I'm like, okay, first off, like, obviously I know about the men have seen the movie The Bad Seed. Yes. You know, it's from 1956. It's kind of like a B-movie classic in its way. Um, Patty McCormick got her start there, one of the youngest people at that time ever nominated for an Oscar, I believe, 11 years old. But really, really, really fun movie. Like, creepy little movie. The director of this, Max Allen Collins, who is better known as a comic book writer who uh, did the, who did the Road to Perdition series, actually, mm-hmm. which is interesting among many other things. Apparently, when he has spare time, he makes movies at, with whatever he happens to have in his wallet at that moment. It looks like <laughs> it's like let's see, I got uh, thirty seven bucks. What can we get for thirty seven bucks? You can do mommy. It's super low budget, nineteen ninety five. Patty McCormick returning, although never... The film's not like, this is the bad seed, too. That's what he's trying to make. What if the little girl for the bad seed grew up, had a child of her own, and she's still fucking completely insane? And there's no mystery. Is she or, is she the killer? Oh, no. No, she's... She kills someone in the first literally five minutes of the movie. Yeah, Marina Sirtis from yeah. Star Trek. Oh, it was, uh, uh, it was uh, uh, Rodbury's wife. It was... Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah Majel, was, Majel yeah, Barrett. Major Barrett. That's, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. who it was, yeah. Um, um, and and he, and she kills her immediately because her daughter didn't get student of the year, and so that murder happens, and then the rest of the movie are is people going like, I think she murdered the teacher, <laughs> yeah. and her like trying to cover her tracks, yeah. and that's what majority of the movie is. Yeah, uh, uh, it's it's not good. It's it's shot like a. Like, it's shot like a training video. Yes. It's shot like you work at a department store and they sit you in the back room and they're like, okay, first you got to watch this. Uh, (laughs) So just when this one's done, just come and get me. I'll be out here. And you're like, okay. Yeah, it's industrial. I was like, oh, yeah, this is like shot on video, but it's not just, I can't convey. Like, it has to be seen to be believed because it's not just a matter of, oh, it's shot on video, so it looks like video, just like a corporate training video. I mean, the lighting. The weird gauzy kind of look of everything. Yeah. It just has a look that's very specific. It looks like something you would see on, like, Everything is Terrible uh-huh. or something like that, which is, like, straight up some VHS piece of shit. Yeah. 
Um, like you said, it, it has every look of those work for hire industrial training videos that you would get when you got to a job when you were working in like the 80s or 90s. You're just like, wow, this was they they put at literally up to the cent the amount of money that they had to to make this and not a cent more. <laughs> it is too boring to be a camp classic and it kind of <laughs> yeah. flirts with being a camp classic, but it is just too dull. Yeah, it's very slow moving. I mean, the one thing I'll give it is that Patty McCormick is definitely interested in making an actual good movie. I think she's, despite how great she may have been as a child actress, she there's, Patty McCormick did not have a great later in life career and she's certainly one of the strongest performers here and she's giving it her all, but you can kind of see why, you know, Patty McCormick did not continue to get A-list roles. She's not fantastic. No one is. Jason Miller from The Exorcist has a role in here. Yeah, that's weird too. Uh, Mickey Spillane, who apparently is very, the writer, who's very, who was very close friends with the writer and director Mm. of this, Makes a cameo in this as well as in the second one, which I'll, I'll just full admins. I couldn't bring myself to watch this. I've got one. so I have something to say about that. Okay. Um, hey, the people that authored this disc, technology will not allow you to watch the second one if you have a player that remembers that you've watched this movie. So the problem is, you know how when you watch a film, uh, there are DVD players that remember where you left off. Uh huh. This remembers that you chose to watch Mommy from the initial screen that lets you choose two movies. Uh-huh. There's no back button. There's no return what? button. There's nothing that lets you go back to the menu to get the two movies again. Oh, that's a crazy mistake. So I had all intents of watching the second one that's also on there. Because I didn't... I'll be quite honest. The first one was an amusing way to pass the time. Uh-huh. I did not like it. I would not recommend it. It's yeah. not a pick of the week. But I was... I, I it's not was, hateful, but... I, I smiled enough to go, all right, I'm going to put the second one in. And I literally couldn't. I would have had to have gone (coughs) in and delete whatever data file was associated with that so that it would forget the choice that I made Mm -hmm. and allow me to re-choose the second one. Wow. Because there was no option to go back. So, for the record... no... Nothing to go back. For the record, the second one, and I did not see it. This is reading from other people's review. It takes a Psycho 2 take where it's like, okay, it's years later. Mom is being released from prison. Like, Mm. you're healed now. You're better. And someone starts killing people around her, except the movie takes the take of, well, wait, is it actually her? Because someone is trying to clearly, someone is trying to convince her that it's her. Then it's the daughter. Right. Like, I'm already, right. that's already, I haven't even watched it, and I'm like, and well, you can that, tell you, well it's then the it's the daughter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is this is a miss. Um, a, a horror movie that's definitely, I would say, held in higher regard, but literally just it has regard, because I don't, I'd never even heard of Mommy before, is Lucio Fulci's The House by the Cemetery. Oh, yeah. Um, now, I'm a Fulci fan. Um, yes. I like his particular brand of just ridiculously over-the-top gothic atmospheres and gore. Of his films that are considered his best, which this is certainly among them, this is my least favorite of those films. I still really like it, but it's playing a little too close to its influences, which in this case is Frankenstein and, weirdly, The Shining. It's got The Shining all over it, but you won't notice until someone points it out and go, Watch that film and think about The Shining. You'll be like, holy shit, this whole thing is The Shining, isn't it? <laughs> it's just, it's not obvious that you realize, wow, it's all kind of taken from there and reworked just a little bit. And that's fine. I mean, this is 1981. Um, this is being put out in, a, in one of those massive 
really cool lenticular cover sets uh, with multiple discs and shit tons of bonus features. So if you're a fan of Fulci, and they've been re-releasing all his of the big Fulci films lately on sets like this, hey, here you go. <laughs> you know, this is, is another one, but... The, you you tell the storyline of this one. Oh, the storyline of this one is that a family uh, moves into a fixer upper that was uh, previously owned by a Doctor Freudstein, Freudstein, <laughs> yeah. Freudstein. Um, and hey, uh, the house is haunted? Question mark? Is it haunted? Right. The little boy. I'm like is seeing so the, images. The of little people. boy. Yeah, the little boy sees a ghost. Um, but I don't know. Like, I guess he's some kind of uh, monster that lives in like a the the basement of the house. Um, like most Fulci films, uh, it operates on what film critics like to call dream logic, which means it barely makes sense. True. Um, but is still somehow compelling. Um, I, it's, it's simpler than some of Fulci's films. It does not get as out there as like a Gates of Hell or something like that. And, and I'm, honestly, it's simpler plotting than even Zombie, which is pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. This is a family moves into a house. That bad shit happened in the house. The dad reads about the bad shit that happens in the house, and then the movie climaxes with the worst shit happening so far in the movie, and then the movie ends. Right, there's shit so, in the house you didn't know was in the house, yeah. and now after after surreptitiously taking out several other people around the edges uh, that you wouldn't realize were missing are now is now going to come after you. Yeah, <laughs> I like the vibe of this movie a lot. I like the music. I like the general feel. It's weird. Um, all Fulci movies are kind of weird. Yeah. Um, they all kind of have this, uh, this like not quite, this like not quite human hands that made this film sort of feel. Uh, cause they're all a little, they're all like, they all look and sound and seem to be, um, like, it's like somebody doing an imitation of a an actual horror film and going, mm-hmm. this is what horror films are like, and now I'm going to make one. <laughs> but being off just enough to be, like, really weird and, like, it's like hearing, like, a flat note in your ear and going, like, I, like, I can tell you're trying to sing that, but it's not, like... Or, like, the things where they're, like... We fed this computer every Spider-Man comic yeah. and asked it to write a Spider-Man comic. Yeah, it's kind <laughs> of like that. There's something. There's a weird. There's a weird kind of thing to to me. All of Fulci films that are just like I don't know. I can see what you're doing, but I don't know why this feels like the incorrect version of that. <laughs> and I also don't know why I'm responding positively. To your incorrect version of right. what should feel otherwise correct. And that's kind of the way I feel about this movie is it's like, if you were to really press me, like, I don't think the acting's good. Mm-hmm. I don't find it, like, scary. Yeah. But as a whole package, there's there's something about it. Something still just compelling. off-center enough where it kind of, like, I find it mildly troubling in a weird way, and I don't know that, why. That you feel that way or about the movie I itself? I feel uneasy about the movie itself. Yeah. I feel like I feel like if you were to tell me that, and immediately after they filmed it, everyone died, I would be <laughs> like, okay, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> like, it feels otherworldly in, in, a, in a very strange way, and all his movies feel otherworldly. Part, partly due to the audio, 
Um, but you know, the one thing that I don't think he gets enough credit for from like legit, um, you know, film critics is his eye for, uh, like decay. Oh yeah. Like this movie in particular is not, it's not, it has scenes of gore, but it's not as gore heavy as a lot of his other ones. Yeah. But the house is, is like rotten. But to be fair, when it does go there, If you're a person who considers yourself even somewhat squeamish about gore, Fulci movies, including this one, are not for you. Yeah. Because this is that when when, when people want to go, look how horrible horror movies are, sizzle reel. Yes. You can guarantee there's going to be scenes from a Fulci movie in it. (laughs) I like the old, like, decrepit cemetery, and I like the house is sort of, like, always kind of, like in a state of decay. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of production design stuff and just simple like framing of the camera and shots and things that are it's like really well shot. Look really good. Well, I think that's one of the compelling things about his movies is even though they're so, I mean, just puerile on some level yeah. and, and uh, just there to like, just throw as much gore as you possibly can at the camera. Although very well done. They tend to have really good cinematography and really good sound design and sometimes like scores that are excellent. And you're like, why are there these things that are so well done? And these other things that are just, you know, Z grade. (laughs) It's such a weird mix that you can't help but be drawn to it. This is like the definitive version of this. Oh, decidedly. Like this, this, I think, I, I, or I don't know what else. I'm trying to remember what else is in the stack. This might very well be my pick of the week. Uh, I mean, this thing is like, it's it's the best possible version of this. And not only that, it is packed. It's packed with stuff. It is. And even while I tend to agree, it's like, well, I I will say once again, it is not my favorite of the Fulci films. I, it's a movie, this is not my first time seeing it. I'll watch it again at some point. Uh, I still like it, but it's my least favorite of the main ones by him. I still can't, you can't sneeze at what they put together here, which is an exceptional transfer. Mm. Um, two discs of stuff, including a deleted scene, a commentary track, uh, lots, all the promotional materials from around the world, uh, just tons and tons and tons of small features and interviews that just cover every possible angle. A, a recent Q&A seg, uh, segment with actress uh, Catriona McCall, uh, who was in this. Um, yeah, I mean, a booklet. There's a disc for the soundtrack on a separate CD, although I don't even have a CD player anymore, but it's cool to have it. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> the, the 3D lenticular slipcover, which I have never stopped going cool <laughs> about. I love that. It's it's a really incredibly loving, lavish set that is just head way above any previous version of this film that exists. Definitely, yeah, and it, and it is it is definitely my pick of the week. Uh, you know, I I would say that you know it's probably a, there. Might, it might be a long time before you're going to get a set for this particular movie as good as this. There will always be releases of the first Beverly Hills Cop in some form or another. Sure. So I think in in terms of like this this is so exhaustive that hearing you say that they've been doing this with his other films, mm-hmm. like I knew there was a zombie release, mm-hmm. and I was like, man, I don't want to pay thirty bucks for a zombie. But I didn't realize that if zombie, if, Same if that release is as packed as this is, it is. I will probably go back and get that zombie. I'm still just waiting for them to do uh, uh, 
City of the Living Dead, yeah. which is, I think, probably his best one. I mean, it's between that and the Beyond for me. I For me, I'm zombie, but that was the first one I ever saw. Mm-hmm. City of the Living Dead, Gates of Hell is like second to me. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I can't wait to see all the bonus features. I hope they talk about just how they did some of the effects in there, because that one's got effects where I'm like, I have no idea how you even did that. Yeah. That, that was insane. And arguably the goriest movie I've ever seen, like, end of story. Full stop. <laughs> I also think that one, and I know we're not talking about these, I also think that one has the best uh, ending of any of the Fulci's. And maybe the best score as so. well. Uh, and I forget, I think that was uh, Lindsay who did the score. Yeah. I can't remember. I uh, so we're going to talk very briefly about the fact that <laughs> they just put out a Blu-ray of the DC Streaming Network's Swamp Thing, which we... Although they hadn't sent us anything, we chose to do a segment on on a previous Digital Noise where yes. we were like, you know what? We're going to motherfucking talk about Swamp Thing. We're yes. going to go on about it here because we know we two both watched it and we have thoughts. And I would suggest you track that one down <laughs> and listen to us talk fully about the show, which we both came down on. Glad I saw it. Liked things about it a lot. Overall, not a success. I think the price of it, this on home video, though, is still a worthwhile buy. If you've been interested and you don't want to get into the DC uh, monthly ecosystem, I think they've priced this and Doom Patrol both at around 20 bucks, give or take $5. Yeah. And I think that I think it's worth that at least because the pilot is excellent. Every episode from there is kind of worse than the one before mm. until it just kind of tails out. Yeah. But I still think that the the first half of the first season is worth the is worth the price of it on the home video. Uh, the downside here is there is literally not a single bonus feature. So it's kind of like, why did you even put it out on Blu-ray then? And I think to some level it's just we didn't get as many subscribers as we thought we were going to on the DC streaming network. Um, for those people like, I want to see it, but I'm not going to pay for DC – uh, which I feel like a lot of people who have a, 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 like really like the Swamp Thing, but the other shows on the network just aren't really their thing. They don't care about an animated Harley Quinn show, you know, or or Teen Titans. They're like, yeah, but Swamp Thing, Alan Moore. Well, there you go. Uh, for the record, if you want to see all those shows and you're holding out, HBO Max comes out in May and it will include all of that stuff. Yeah. So, good to know. Our last title we are going to talk about this week is Jay and Silent Bob Reboot, which, funny enough, John negotiated for last week when he was here. It was on Aaron's stack. And he's like, how come I'm not getting that? Can I I see asked. I asked for it. Yeah. He's like, can can, can we move some stuff around here? I kind of want to see that. Which I don't think is... I don't want people to think that means... You know, John is a huge Kevin Smith VOSQ fan so much as that I feel like you were just like I I was. Like, I don't really want to see that film, but I kind of need to see that film (laughs) just to, I got to know. What is Jay and Silent Bob reboot? What are they going to do? What are they going to do? Like, I mean, at this point, it's got to be the, I mean, there's something so singular and weird about Kevin Smith's career and his whole VOSQ universe thing that you, to one degree... How is it still happening? I mean, he just now started this week saying, oh, yeah, here's what we're doing with Clerks 3. Like, Clerks 3? How is this not the final movie? (laughs) You know? And it's just this movie, which was co-produced by Legion M, which is a fan-owned production company, and they do a lot of very fan-based type movies. This is unapologetically a movie for people who are like, well, I don't know, man, but I really like Kevin Smith movies. And I have friends who are like that, and they they tend to be pretty like, you know, that's cool, I get a lot of people don't like it, but I love them, I watch them all. This movie was made for you, 
and just for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's just unapologetically, you better be a big fucking Kevin Smith fan if you're going to watch this movie. Um, I actually like it better than several of his other films that were trying to reach a wider audience. I think this is better than Clerks 2, which I thought was atrocious. Oh, bold. <laughs> but... I, there were jokes in here I flat out just didn't get because I'm like, I haven't memorized all your films, dude. Oh, it's not even that. It's, did you listen to my podcast? It's not even uh, just it, the films. It's yeah. like, are you familiar with the fact that he had a heart attack? Are you familiar with the fact that he's gone to a whole vegetable diet? Because these are going to be referenced in this film. Right. Like, it's not just a matter of are you familiar with his filmography? It's, have you been following the cult of personality that is Kevin Smith? Because the jokes are going to... If they're not going to be about the movies, they're going to be about him as a persona that makes movies. Yeah, even though he plays, of course, Silent Bob in here, he couldn't help himself but also appear as Kevin Smith Mm -hmm. in the film. And there are aspects of this movie, which is largely just the plot of Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back done over again, but that's the joke. You know, they're rebooting it. The guys have to go out to to travel to Hollywood again. They bring back... um, Shannon Elizabeth, his former girlfriend from the movie, and finds out, oh, she actually got pregnant by you that one time you got together in that last movie and has had a kid of her own played by uh, Harley Quinn Smith. Shocker. (laughs) (laughs) And she and her two friends kind of finagle their way to get along for the trip uh, along the way. And Jay is told, but the daughter doesn't know that she's his dad. Shannon Elizabeth says, please don't tell her. She also doesn't know that they're she's going with them to this convention, which is a basically a, a Kevin Smith fan convention yeah. in, in LA promoting the movie. And it's a series just like that one of silly gags and set pieces. And some of it to say works is not the right term. Some of it is, is more chuckle worthy than others are. There's only one sequence in here where I was like, I really like that where they meet Ben Affleck, who is playing, his character from Chasing Amy. Mm-hmm. And it there's a it's kind of almost a nice moment where they're talking about like just looking back over your life and the mistakes you made and him like a, you know on a meta level him addressing that yeah there were mistakes made with Chasing Amy. I'm very proud of it, but I also realize that it hasn't aged well in, in certain senses and here's what I would do differently if I was doing it today. I, kind of, I really like that one sequence. I was like, wow, why isn't the rest of the film as good as this And that sequence? gets to a deeper issue that I have with this is that when... So let me use an analogy here. Um, Jim Lee, mm-hmm. comic book artist Jim Lee. Mm-hmm. Jim Lee, sometime in the past 20 years or so, um, I don't know when he began to recognize himself as a product that produces Jim Lee art versus mm-hmm. being a very good artist. And so you'll see things where he's sketching for himself or a commission or something for other people that show a tremendous amount of skill and remind you why you liked Jim Lee in the first place. But when Jim Lee takes on a monthly comic for DC and is asked to draw something for the masses, he delivers what he believes is the Jim Lee product. Mm -hmm. You're going to get Jim Lee women and Jim Lee poses and Jim Lee men making Jim Lee faces. And it's sad because it lacks the energy of the stuff that made him famous in the first place. Okay. And go back and look at uncanny X-Men now and still be blown away by the, by the level of graphic detail in his art versus 
this kind of like, here's the Jim Lee face you asked for. Right. I'm Jim Lee. <laughs> the Kevin Smith thing is like, I'm going to play the hits. And I know you guys love my jokes about cocks and weed. And I'm like, I loved sort of the honesty. Mm-hmm. I loved the relationship honesty. I loved the feeling of hanging out with my friends. His perception of what his appeal is, is to me askew, no pun intended, hmm. with what the reality was of the appeal of his early work. Mm-hmm. And it's strange to me that when you see this kind of like victory lap, greatest hits sort of movie, mm-hmm. he hits all these weird... It's all like he hits hardest for the pot humor and the sex jokes. And it's sort of like that stuff was never the stuff that resonated. Yeah. To me, the stuff that resonated was like you talking about him bring the Ben Affleck scene. It's about feeling like these are authentic characters and authentic situations, real people or facsimiles of people that you know. And it's easier to relate as well to the thought of like people hanging out at a convenience store or working at the video store next door. As a young nerd in the early 90s, I was, we talked about representation a couple times in this episode, I felt seen. I was like, wow, they're mentioning comic books in this movie and nobody's a fucking nerd. Mm. Like, everybody's cool as shit and they're reading comics. That's just like me. I'm cool as shit and I'm reading comics. (laughs) I'm hanging out with my friends. I'm going to the mall. Hey, I work in a video store. Right. I saw things that I recognized from my own life on a movie screen. And... It's hard for me to relate to the celebrity side of it where it's like, okay, yeah, but now they have whole comic conventions in their honor because that's what his life is now. Mm -hmm. So it's still honest to where he is in his own life, but it's not relatable. No. Like, I don't relate to the concept of, oh, they make movies about me or, oh, they have a whole convention dedicated to me or, oh, they make Funko Pops of everything I create. And it's sort of like... That's not relatable. I'm like, don't like, you have any deeper feelings about this? Like, like chasing Amy was a good example yeah. of like a guy who was really exploring a lot of conflicting emotions. Yeah. And, and and it's funny, chasing Amy. I just watched again last year, mm-hmm. and there's been some talk about it being not woke, and also being a movie about. Oh, it's a movie about a lesbian that falls in love with a straight guy. Right. When I was watching it this past year, I was like, that's really not what this movie's about. Right. When I was watching it, I was about, it was like, this is about two friends who are both sexually kind of immature in the way that they deal with stuff. Because Holden's problem is less about Alyssa's sexuality and Alyssa even is kind of weighing her own thing. Like, am I on the, am I on like a spectrum instead of being straight up? gay Mm -hmm. and Holden's deal is I can't stop thinking about her sleeping with other people Mm -hmm. and it's not related to gay straight or anything it's just literally him trying to learn the lesson that I think we all learn somewhere we all hope to if we're going to be mature men which is to stop thinking of women like they're not people with their own right sex lives and agendas and and needs and wants and things that they but but I think that that's a young man's movie because yeah. those are young man's thoughts you right. have sex the first time and suddenly it's just like you the thought of anybody touching the person you had sex with just rattles your whole brain but that's the thing about it you watch that movie and it's so it's sweetly but but uh but harshly self-aware mm-hmm. oh uh, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah and it has a lot of interesting things to say 
And that was the last time he had anything interesting to say in one of his movies. It's like he never even attempted again to say anything really interesting. And like, ever since then, he's been misgaging what his appeal was to a wider audience. Yeah. And this movie is just the ultimate pinnacle of that. At the very least, I'll hand this, he kind of stays away from the super gross-out jokes that have become kind of a hallmark of, of Kevin Smith films for the last five or six of them. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad, because I was like, I don't need to see somebody get sprayed with sperm in their open mouth and or whatever it is. You know, whatever the gross-out joke is in that one. Yeah. Oh, that guy fucked a donkey. Okay, whatever. Right. Um, but, I mean, there's something kind of... I don't know, weirdly, slightly sweet about this whole affair that it is just for his super hardcore fans, which certainly he wouldn't still be, you know, able to have a career doing this if it wasn't for those people, you know. Uh, So it's a love letter to them. And the people I know who saw it, who are those people, really liked it a lot. For me, I'm like, I'm never going to rewatch this movie. No way. It's not made for me. But there are, it does have its moments. It's got a huge amount of cameos. Like, there's just almost everybody who's notable of ever being in a Kevin Smith film is in this movie. Oh, God, and you were right. So even even character cameos where it's like, if they can't find a narrative way to cut them into the film, yeah. they'll just have them, they'll just shoot in a side and cut it in where they go, hey, remember me? I'm so-and-so from this movie. Yeah. Here's what I'm doing now, the end. Yeah, there's a scene with Matt Damon who's like, I was the character of the, uh, or like, I can't remember what the character's name, but I was the, I was the, yeah, Loki, Loki from, uh, from uh, Dogma. I bet you're wondering, you know what? Whatever happened to him? Well, here's what happened to me. And literally just him by himself in a room, apropos of nothing, cut back to movie. You're like, what? <laughs> what just happened? Why was that there? That's this movie. Yeah. Um, you know if you're going to see this movie or not. Uh, there's cast interviews for an hour of cast interviews, which is largely just everybody fucking around. Uh, Kevin and Jay going out and interviewing the cast and crew, uh, which is also just them fucking around. But interestingly, spend an awful lot of time interviewing the actual crew. Like, hey, here's the guy who was doing sound for us here, or here's the person that day who was working the craft, craft services table. I'm like, okay, you do ne- never, in fact, see that. And but them doing it in a sort of jovial, aha! Let's, we all love working on Kevin Smith movies. Yeah. Right? There's ten minutes of bloopers, uh, and for some reason, there's a hair reel, which is a minute and forty three seconds of of them showing the need to constantly adjust uh, Kevin Smith and Jay Muse, Muse's wigs. <laughs> I don't know why. That's funny. Well, that is it for this week's Digital Noise. Thank you, John, for joining me. I think we both agree House on the, by the Cemetery is our pick of the week. Oh, yeah, it's mine. I'm mine for sure. Uh, it's a great, great package, and I highly recommend people pick it up. It's it's one of those, you know, I, I am notoriously um, more of a streamer than I am a person who buys physical media. Mm-hmm. And this is a really strong argument for physical media. This yeah. is this is a whole pa- complete package you're not going to get from just a streaming uh, platform. Very true. 